remain standing for a short prayer. Father, we open ourselves now to your word. May your spirit to inspired scripture move amongst us tonight and help us not only to understand what you're trying to say to us, but give us the grace of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to that last chapter of John's Gospel that I've been asked to preach on this evening in this little post-Easter series. I often think that John 21 is the most glorious P.S. in all literature. Now, I'm aware in the modern, we don't write letters anymore, do we? So perhaps P.S.'s are things we don't get involved in. We don't, with text messages and emails, we don't have... P.S.'s. But for those who remember how to write ordinary letters, uh, you put a P.S. at the end when you've forgotten to say something, and if you forget again, you have a P.P.S. and so on. If you're very clever, you think of something you want to give great emphasis, and you plan your P.S. before you start the letter, and then you stick it in as if it was an afterthought at the end. Now, I feel this is an afterthought. Don't you agree that the end of chapter 20 reads like the end of the letter? I mean, it's a wonderful climax. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord, I'm finished. That you couldn't finish on a higher note. And then suddenly says afterwards. Uh, it's a P.S. There are some people who think actually chapter 21 was written by a different hand and that John himself puts his testimony to it in verse 24. I doubt that. But I think it was put in for one or two obvious reasons, as a lovely little afterthought, and I'm so glad that the Spirit inspired John to give us this P.S. It's there for, I think, two or three very obvious reasons. It's there uh, to show the reinstatement of Peter. This is very important, and we'll see how that runs through this chapter. And I hope it has something to say to all of us this evening, particularly to some who may feel we need to be restored in our Christian life. It was a very important moment for Peter. I think it may have been there because of the rumour that got around about John, the author. He is the one whom Jesus loved. And uh, the comment about him in verse 22, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? And uh, a rumour got around, you see, that uh, John would never die. And people love rumours. They love gossips just like they love silly codes, and the Da Vinci Code uh, goes on, having a people who believe it. I have met one or two people who believe it. Extraordinary, really. Uh, the author doesn't believe it. I think, nor does anybody else, but an uh, insane mind. But uh, uh, we, we like this idea of the sort of code it makes for excitement. Oh, incidentally, it's a lot easier to believe the Da Vinci Code than believe the Bible. Because it doesn't make any demands on your life whatsoever. It's just an intriguing bit of nonsense. And it has nothing to do with ordinary life. I understand why people go for these things. And so there was a rumour. A rumour that Jesus said that John would never die. And of course they love to talk about that. We'll come back to that in a moment. I think that's why it's there. But it's mostly there to remind us that Jesus continues in his risen power to work, my famous four words after Easter, always Easter. I reminded some of you this morning of those words, and it's true. And here we get the third full appearance, verse 14, the third full appearance of Jesus to the disciples, to many other individual appearances, but his appearance the third time he met with the disciples as a group. And uh, 
when he meets them, it links with two aspects of Christian ministry. Uh, in a sense, I didn't expect when I came tonight I was going to be interviewed, uh, so that was all very much off the cuff. Um, but uh, the two things that I think do concern me, on the one hand, there's the picture here of fishing, and the Christian church is meant to be constantly fishing. Peter goes out fishing and he learns how to catch fish for Christ. And one of the great aspects of Christian ministry is reaching out. The moment a church ceases to reach out, it's finished. It's a constant fishing. We may do it different ways. We may have more services. We may have church plants. We may have fresh expressions. All sorts of things. But fishing is part of our ministry. And the other part, of course, is shepherding. And when Peter is challenged in the second half of the chapter... The challenge is always, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. That is to say, if a church is only involved in fishing, if it doesn't care for the flock, if it doesn't bother to pastor the people, then things will go sadly wrong and do go sadly wrong. And it's that balance that we need constantly. A church which is reaching out, and I mean that both individual churches and denominations and groupings, but churches that care for their people and pastor them effectively. And I think the other thing about these verses that we're going to look at is a reminder that the church fishing and shepherding is uh, constantly continuing the work of Jesus. The whole of the New Testament suggests that the church is the ongoing work of Jesus. Take Luke, for example. He writes two volumes. When he starts his second volume, Acts, it begins... That this is, all I wrote you first of all, Theophilus, in my uh, gospel, about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Began? The whole of Luke, just the beginning, it's the whole story. To the end, to the ascension. Oh yes, but that's only the beginning. It's the story of the church is the ongoing work of the risen Jesus. Now just glance at verse 25 of this chapter. And I want you to answer in your own mind, please not audibly, it would put me off my my stride, but just answer in your own mind. Don't you think verse 25 reads like a gross exaggeration? Don't you really think he's he's gone over the top? Isn't it OTT, verse 25? If every one of Jesus' works were written down, that even the whole world would not have room for the books that have been written. Come on, John, that's an exaggeration. The whole world? I I kind of half hope it might be an exaggeration because all preachers occasionally exaggerate and have to be occasionally rebuked for their exaggeration. So perhaps it is an exaggeration. Or is there a possibility? Is there a possibility that John actually means that wherever the work of Jesus goes on and the risen Jesus works, the whole world is the story. And the story goes on. We are part of that story. The books are being written. Now, here's a little health warning, if I may. We live in an age of my story. This is the in thing of today. We all tell our story. So you see, whatever you believe, however you behave, if it's fine for you, that's my story. And if I'm happy with my story, then you must respect my story. And so everybody's got their own story, and you may believe what you like and behave as you like. Well, that's desperately dangerous. The testimony of what God is doing is his story in my life. Oh, how it relates to me by all means, but it's not my story, it's his story. And I know this is a play on words a bit, but if it's his story, 
His story is history. And history is reality. It's objective truth. It happens. If it's my story, my story is mystery. And that's what it is, you see. It's my mysterious story. It's what's good for me. But it has no way, it's no message to change the world. And most of the religion of our day is mystery. There's no message to change the world. There's no hope for transformation of society. There's no way we'll stem the way our nation is going. It's just mystery. My story. So the glory of this chapter, which I, I enjoy looking at again, sharing with you, is there are three great truths that actually are still desperately relevant. And as we respond, there's another story, his story, being written in the book that can fill the whole world. One, Jesus meets us. That's verses 1 to 14. And uh, as you read these verses, something comes out if you know your Bible. It's a kind of action replay. It's exactly happened before in Luke chapter 5 when Peter was first called. It's a fishing story. And it's a story of failure in fishing. And it's a story of Peter being humbled. It's a, a start again. And it all ends with a challenge of follow me in verse 19. But a lot's got to happen before you get to the follow me bit. Jesus meets us first the moment of the encounter. They're back in Galilee where they were told to go. Galilee was up north, where all the best things happen, as you know. Up north, on the furthest north you get, on the edge of the world, in that world. It was looking out onto the world that needed to be reached for the gospel, with the gospel. That's where they meet. And it's intri intriguing, isn't it? Who meets there? Verse 2. If ever you have any doubts about the ring of truth in the Bible story... Look at all the unusual things that happen. And here's uh, one very obvious one in verse 2. Isn't this a strange grouping of people? I mean, even if Peter, James and John, you'd have said, well, that's always Peter and James and John. But it's Simon, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John. An interesting little group. A reminder, this is a true story. This happened. They remembered exactly who were there. And so the moment of the encounter was this group, getting on with the job of their fishing, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But Peter's still the leader, isn't he? For when it comes to the crunch bit of the story, and Jesus appears in verse 7, it's Peter who plunges into the sea. I've always found this rather mysterious. Uh, if I were ever to jump from a boat into the sea, which is extremely unlikely, knowing my uh, lack of interest in such things, but if I were ever to jump into the sea, I would take my clothes off rather than put them on. It seemed rather odd. He put his jacket on to jump into the sea. Well, an odd thing to do. Anyway, that's Peter. He does things his own way, and he was always in the lead. Now, here's the question. Was Peter being disillusioned when he says in verse 2, 3, I'm going out to fish? It's often said so, and I'm not sure you can push that. Is it Peter saying, I've given up on the risen Jesus, there's nothing I can do, I can't be any use to him, so I'm going back fishing? Well, not necessarily, but I think it does indicate for the moment, and the way Jesus deals with it suggests he might have thought so, that Peter was forgetting that kingdom work comes first. Oh no, it's not suggesting that we should all leave our jobs and become full-time missionaries. But it is saying that there's always a danger in my turning my back on what God wants me to do. I'm going to do something that I can do in my own strength. 
It may have been that moment of disillusionment. And certainly Jesus needs to bring Peter back. And so you get this remarkable action replay. Jesus, as it were, takes them through the same event that they'd been through, Peter and the others, when they were first called in Luke chapter 5. Same lake, same fishing, same failure, same time of day, same Jesus. No, not quite. He'd been to a cross en route and was risen. Same Peter, not quite. He let Jesus down very badly. So you see, it's ready. And it may just be for somebody here tonight that even this church is a place where things have happened in the past and it may be that you're here for an action replay tonight. Just possibly because the old vicar from the past is here. An action replay might have all sorts of ramifications. I don't know. But I do know that these encounters from the risen Jesus can be very real. There's the moment. What is the miracle in the encounter? Well, they'd failed in verse 3b. They'd caught nothing. And uh, the stranger on the shore appears. Note again the whole veracity of the story of the resurrection, that they never seem immediately to recognize who it is. You would have thought they would by now. They'd got used to the idea he was risen, but they didn't spot it. It was John who eventually said it's the Lord. And he did that. When you see there had been the catch of fish and it, may, it reminded him of the old story. It's a, very, very, it's a very relevant story. It's a very realistic story. Have you noticed how Jesus almost is putting the knife in? When Jesus said, uh, haven't you any fish? Knowing full well they hadn't. Uh, did you get the curt way he replied Nick was far too kind when he read the word no for when those disciples said no I think it was a pretty straightforward no don't you dare ask any more questions have you caught any fish and Jesus as it were making them realize that they were in a mess without him and then comes the command go on go out put your net on the right side you'll find it it's quite remarkable they were fishermen. Jesus was a carpenter. They knew you caught fish at night. And they hadn't caught at night. They weren't going to catch it now. But Jesus said, and they did. One of the remarkable things about the Lord, he often calls us to do things that we find quite inexplicable. And it's in the inexplicable that we find the most remarkable blessings. I hope you've had that experience in your lives. So he, they did what they were told, and in came the fish, and they so much so that they got their 153. Let me just get the 153 out of the way, if I may. That's the number there, quoted in verse 11. I preached in this passage in a convention down south some months ago, and uh, as a result of what I said, I got a little booklet sent through the post. And it was a booklet on the 153 and the number of uh, interpretations of the 153. There were actually more than 153 interpretations of the 153, I tell you. Uh, here are three of them. 153, says somebody, is the, is the numerical equivalent of the name Simon Jonas. Well, there you are, if you want to know that. So be it. Even more remarkable... And this is true. Please don't test it. I have tried it out several times in my brain today. It is, if you add up the numbers 1 to 17, it comes to 153, which is very interesting. But you ask the question, is that really of any importance whatsoever? I'm 
Or, if you prefer this rather more biblical one, it says, the hundred stands for the Gentiles, fifty for the Jews, and three for the Trinity. Well, there you are. You make what you like. I have a very straightforward answer to it. You know, it's quite straightforward. Are you ready? Here's the revelation that I have, because I know the truth. They actually counted them, and there were 153. <laughs> which I guess is a fair catch uh, for that time of day. Amazing how some people want to... I'm sure the Da Vinci Code has got 153 in it somewhere. I bet it's found it somewhere, some special revelation. Uh, no, no. It was just that they were thrilled. Do you see the miracle? They're in their own strength even now. They couldn't do it. With the Lord, they could. And that's the moment John says, the title of my sermon tonight, it's the Lord. Not by looking at him. Not by seeing his face but by seeing him at work. What is then third of the message behind the encounter? The uh, moment of it, the miracle in it, here's the message behind the encounter. It is, of course, a proof of the presence of the risen Lord, his personal concern with their lives, and his power to change things. Uh, there's also, if you look at verse 9 to 14, a little uh, nice touch. It's rather like the feeding of the 5,000 all over again, isn't it? It's rather like the upper room uh, having a, a meal together. It's this lovely picture. The Lord, the stranger, becomes the host. It's breakfast time. Most of us don't find spiritual things happen before breakfast, but uh, on that it was breakfast time, and he gathered them together. It was a lovely picture of Jesus the Lord in the midst. Now, I've always seen these first 14 verses have been very important, but they are building up to what follows on. Jesus meets us, okay, that's fine. But now Jesus calls us. That's 15 to 23. This is another PS to the PS. It's a PPS now. It's a, an interesting one, isn't it? It is how Jesus dealt with Peter. It's a very moving encounter. Now, it's a lovely thought that Jesus actually wanted Peter back, but he wanted Peter humbled. He did not let Peter off the hook immediately. Now, we may think he ought to have done, surely. Oh, no, no. Jesus wanted Peter to be chastened and ready because he wanted Peter to be usable. The old Peter was not ready for this. And Jesus had to make sure he was ready. Take an Old Testament story that's similar. When Joseph is sold into Egypt and his brothers come and Joseph recognizes them. If you know the story, he doesn't immediately say, come on, lads, it's lovely to see you. We're all friends together. I forgive you. No. He actually puts them through quite a bit of uh, almost uh, torture to make sure these men have learnt their lesson. Then when he brings them in, they are able to cope with the situation. So here is Jesus. He wants to be sure. Is Peter ready? The Peter who said, if all the rest fail you, I never will. Oh, it's true that they, Jesus had seen Peter after he denied him. And he looked at him, and Peter wept bitterly. That look of Jesus wasn't one of anger. It was one of sorrow, sadness, love. But now he wanted to make sure that Peter had not just wept bitterly. There are people who weep buckets, but it doesn't change them. He wanted to show that something was different about Peter. So a threefold call. There's a call to love. Each time he asks the question, Simon... Please note, he doesn't call him Peter. He very rarely uses his new name. He's still the old Peter, Simon, son of John. 
Do you really love me more than these? More than these? It can mean more than these things like fishing. I think personally it means more than these other friends of yours. Because I remember Jesus implying that you said, and it's there in the record, you said, even if all the rest betray, I won't. I won't. Can you say you love me more than these now? Is it significant that it was happening by the fireside in the previous verses? And it was by a fireside that he let Jesus down when three times even asked the question, did he belong to Jesus? And so the call comes poignantly. Now, here's where commentators sometimes disagree, and I don't know the final answer, but why is it that when Jesus asked him the third time, verse 17, Peter was hurt? Why the third time? Well, some suggest it's because the third time, when Jesus asked the question in the Greek, he changes the word for love. The first word for love is the agape word. And Peter could never use that agape word. He used a different word, which was a word for friendship. And when Jesus said, you really love me, and Peter would say, I'm very fond of you. And so the third time, Jesus said, are you really fond of me, Peter? And some would say it's because he he, he moved the word down. I doubt that because, you see, I don't think they talked in Greek. Uh, They would talk in Aramaic, and I think to make so much of the Greek is perhaps pushing it, but that may be true. I actually think that it was because it was the third time, and that rang a bell with Peter. He'd been asked a question three times before, and he'd failed so miserably, and it came home to him. And here's the proof that he is being changed. Do you notice how he responds? Do you love me? The third time, do you love me? Verse at the end of that verse 17. Lord, you know all things. You know. I do love you. You see, he's actually saying, no more the boastful, Peter. No more I will, whatever the rest do. You know me. You know my failures. You know deep down that I really do love you. Peter is being proved to be ready. I think I want to say to myself, as I say to you, there is no substitute for that kind of love for Jesus. Remember that first letter to the church in the book of Revelation, the church at Ephesus, the big church, the church that was the dominant church in the neighborhood, and it was sound, and it was orthodox, and it was organized, and Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, I have one thing against you. You've lost your first love. God forbid that we should ever do that. If we lose that, we lose all. And how easily we do love it, lose it. A call to love. Simon, do you love me? Well, then follows a call to serve. He's uh, giving the message, all right, you love me. It's not, words are not enough. So he says, if you love me, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, serve me. If you love me, he said to the disciples earlier on, keep my commands. And that's a challenge that goes on through the New Testament. Peter remembers it. When he writes 1 Peter in the fifth chapter, he tells those people who are elders of that church to feed their sheep. He echoes the word. Paul would say to the uh, Ephesian elders, take heed of yourselves and the flock over which the Lord has made you an overseer. And love is seen in service. 
that's why in answering the, the questions earlier on, I, I want to try and draw out that there, there's the need for both ex exciting expressions of reaching out to the community, uh, and it's great. But it, it will always need that care, and a church must never lose its ability to care for ordinary people in ordinary situations. For part of the church's witness is not just that we are good at reaching out, but we care for those who belong. And that balance must ever be kept. A call to love, a call to serve. But thirdly, a call to sacrifice. You see, it's not just ordinary loving and pastoring. Jesus then says, you see, in verse 18, I tell you the truth. That's one of those old verily, verily's of the old authorized version. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you dressed yourself. But now, now, you are going to be taken where you don't want to go. And this he said, verse 19, to indicate the kind of death Peter would die. Tradition says he was crucified. And he was crucified upside down. That's tradition. We don't know. But every evidence that Peter certainly eventually died in the Emperor Nero reign for following Jesus. And the chastened Peter was now, he, he who had said, I would die for you. And our Lord is now saying, okay, this is what you've got to do. Follow me. Don't you see the difference? In Luke chapter 5, when the young Peter heard Jesus say, follow me, it was exciting stuff. He was a great preacher. He was a great healer. Come on, follow me. Well, of course, any red-blooded man with any vision would be glad to follow Jesus. But now, the man saying, follow me, had the marks of the nails in his hands and the spear in his side. And he said to Peter, you're going to die for me. Follow me? I think that's a challenge to all of us. And in the world in which we live, it's that sort of real faith that's going to make sense. And I want to challenge us all to uh, remember that. I, th I don't think I've mentioned it here this before, but if I have, forgive me. But I remember in my very early days of pastoral ministry as a young curate in St. Helens in Lancashire, 50 years ago, trying to cope with young people who were, even in those days, up in a rebellious lot and uh, tough, and didn't listen to epilogues very much. My only job, I was really quite good at table tennis in those days, and I used to sort of take these kids on at table tennis. My way of doing it was not even to take my jacket off. That was the way I did I'd get my jacket on, and these lads would come and say, this curate, to his jacket on, you see. And I'd wipe the floor with them and make them feel... It was good. It was good training. I recommend it. <laughs> Did my, did my ego good and was good for them. Anyhow, this tough lot, we tried to have epilogues to sort of get a message across. Fifty years ago, I was very young. There was a remarkable event when uh, Jim Elliot went out to the Alka Indians with a friend and they were killed. And I remember, I remember well, we produced a sound strip. None of this stuff, PowerPoint and the rest, a sound strip, a little film strip. A little tape recording. But it was powerful stuff. And these kids listened. You could hear a pin drop. Jim Elliot said those famous words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. They knew that was real. 
They weren't enamored by church going and all the stuff we talked about. But when people are prepared to do that for what they believe, come on boys, this is worth living for. And until we give that sort of challenge, I suppose we'll go on singing to the wind. A call to sacrifice. Now, isn't that nice stuff? This is why the Bible's so honest. You get that great moment, and then in verse 20, Peter saw that John was following. And dear old Peter, he is changed, but not completely. He, he, he says, he's a bit curious, well, Lord, if I've got to die, what about this chap? And Jesus said, well, if I want him to stay till I come back, what's I got to do? You, you follow me. Uh, there was a bit of the old Simon still around. And it's very easy. We look over our shoulder. If the Lord's saying to me, you've got to sacrifice, what about the others? What about some of these people? Here? They're not sacrificing much. Why should I take notice? Well, Peter had to be reminded, as far as Peter was concerned, what God does with John is not his business. A call to sacrifice. A call to serve. A call to love. I find in my last bits very, very brief. Jesus meets, Jesus calls, Jesus uses. 24, 25. Our words, I love the, the testimony of John in verse, in verse 24. I was there, I know it's true, this is the disciple saying. Uh, similar words in chapter 19 when he, he says, I was there when I saw the blood and the water coming out of the side of Jesus. I saw it. Now we can't testify like that. But we can make sure that people hear this testimony. And it's great to see this church still concerned about outreach and taking the good news to others in all kinds of ways. Our words are part of it, but also our works. That's my interpretation of verse 25, rightly or wrongly. That if the work of the church goes on, then you see, wherever people respond to the gospel, there's a book being written. Paul would say, you see, in 2 Corinthians 3, that all Christian people are letters known and read by all. So that my life in Jesus is a, a book, a letter. It's a PS and a PAPS and a PPS. It's a telling the story. Telling the story. Not my story, but part of his story. Letters known and read by of all men. And I was pondering that as I was thinking of how to finish this sermon tonight. Uh, you see, in, this, in a very real sense, this is the end of John's Gospel. We have, we've done his last two chapters and this follow-up to Easter. But you see, uh, in a way, I want to say to us, what kind of Gospel do we proclaim by the people we are, as well as by the words we speak? Letters? Known and read by all. This is the gospel according to John. What is the gospel according to me? How do I reflect? And I, I, the man himself would be very cross with me if he knew I was going to use his illustration. But Reg Cam's in glory now. And so Reg, I'm sure, will allow me to do it. Reg Cam died a year ago, almost exactly, at Easter. I've always felt that... Uh, you know, to take a service of a great saint of God of Easter is a remarkable, wonderful thing to do. How relevant. Regcam, or known by numbers, not known by most of us, just a name, just a name. A man who came back to the Lord rather vividly through the ministry here, and therefore I remember him well. And when he came back to the Lord, Reg did two or three 
things. One of the things he did, he, w- he would go around with me as, uh, when I took missions because he, he had quite a dramatic testimony to tell about how he was brought back. And uh, his widow knows all the story about being brought back from alcohol addiction. And it was a wonderful way in which Reg was t- changed and he was able to be a testimony to others. And he was a powerful man to speak to men's breakfasts and men's lunches up and down the country. But it's not that I remember it about Reg, but two other things. Reg would... Uh, visit people who, were, who come on the electoral roll to try and encourage them to give regularly to the church. Now, that's not an easy job to do. Not everybody hugs you when you come to ask for some money. There's a sort of reluctance sometimes, even by good burgers of Fullwood. And Reg was willing to sort of, you know, do that. But even that's not the most important thing. Reg Cam, every Friday, would wash up at the Friday club so that older people might be brought into fellowship of the church. Now, I understand now we have four people to do it once a week, and it's great that you do that. I don't even do it once a week, so I can't complain. But you see, he did it every Friday. Every Friday. And when uh, somebody suggested we might make it a road, he was very upset with Reg. He wanted to do it every Friday. That was his ministry. And I've often thought, here's a letter known and read. Here's a man, a businessman, who is quite prepared in his retirement to wash pots to enable older people to hear the gospel. Nothing very glamorous about that. It was hard work. But it was his way of helping to feed the lambs and feed the sheep. Having met the risen Jesus, this was how he responded. And therefore it was rather lovely that Reg was taken home to his Lord at Easter. So I say to you all tonight as we finish this great chapter, I do hope that uh, for some of us it's a reinstatement like Peter as we respond in a moment. But for all of us, it's a call to go out to live the kind of lives that tell his story to a world of need. It will mostly be very unglamorous, very unexciting, very low profile. But what counts is that the risen Jesus with me, in me, through me. Let's pray. Just a moment's quiet. Some of us may want to make our own prayer to the Lord and then I'll say a short prayer before the the hymn. Lord, thank you that the risen Jesus still meets with us. Thank you that he still calls us and he still wants to use us. And so we would quietly offer ourselves back to him. Lord, in your mercy, you know we failed you. Renew us, restore us, take us, use us. And may the living, risen Lord be seen increasingly in and through us and in and through the life of this church to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned this morning, one of the uh, 
privileges of being a preacher here is you're allowed to choose the closing hymn. Well, I, I've taken the liberty this time, I'm not only choosing the closing hymn, but I dared to say to George, could I have the closing tune? I chose the tune for this hymn. Now, uh, it's a great hymn, Christ Triumphant Ever Reigning. It's a lovely hymn, I think, to sort of end our sort of post-Easter sort of services, because it, it exalts the living Lord Jesus. But I like it to the tune called Guiding Power. Guiding Power is in the Cotswolds, where my wife and I often holiday. And, but it's a great tune, a strong tune. Now, I am quite aware that there will be some people who will mutter, I prefer the old tune. Will you please, if you do, not say it to me going out. I've preached three times today. I'm feeling very sensitive and vulnerable. And if you say I prefer the old tune, I shall feel very deflated. If you do, keep it yourself, will you please? And let's enjoy singing Guiding Power. It's a great tune. George did agree with me, uh, politely, that it's a, it's a better tune, but he perhaps said that to be polite. Uh, Christ triumph, and the words are great, whatever the tune. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>